Thank you, Sua. Good morning, Tara. We are in the last Sunday in the book of Ruth. That's the end. That's the conclusion. And so, as we've been saying, we hope that as we've gone through this story, that we've been able to be inspired by the loving life of Ruth, to be drawn to the same God of love that she knew, that she served. Our hope and our prayer has been that through seeing the practical ways that Ruth has loved Naomi, that we are inspired to love one another in specific practical ways and also to love God. And most of all, we hope as we've gleaned through the story of Ruth, pun intended because of all the grain, that we have seen the love of Jesus specifically for us in our lives. And in case you haven't, you won't be able to miss it here at the end of the story. A little bit of background just from last week, moving into the, this final act of the story. Pastor Nat walked us through how Boaz went out to work for the redemption of Ruth, and there was one person that was closer in line as a redeemer in the family of Naomi, and so he had to make sure that he wouldn't redeem her, and if he wouldn't, he said Boaz would be glad to, to marry Ruth to continue the line. But the person that was supposed to, that was closer as a redeemer, we never even get the guy's name. He's referred to as friend or so-and-so, who seems to have never even heard of Ruth, more interested in his own story, probably more interested in his own resources and greed to prevent him from wanting to go through and to buy that land and to continue the family line of what it would cost him to take care of Ruth and Naomi. And so Boaz, happy to marry Ruth, happy to be the redeemer um, even when it's costly. And that leads us to the conclusion of the message today that we just heard. Now, what we're going to do today is look at a little broader stroke of the, of the story and then talk about the, the conclusion, the final act here. Um, so what we're going to do is, the, I'm going to give you the main idea, which is this. The story of Ruth and of Naomi and of Boaz is part of a much bigger story, <laughs> and so is ours. We see that their story, their struggles, their ups and downs, was part of a much bigger story than they possibly could have dreamed of at the time. And the reality is, so is our individual stories. We're part of a much bigger, grand narrative. We're part of God's story that he's weaving. So we're going to look back at the story. We're going to look at the fulfillment of the story, and that's in the verses that we see today. And then we're going to look at how the story continues, the future of the story with the genealogy at the end of the book. So first, let's look back at the story, talk a bit about that. Remember, it began with three funerals. Naomi is presented as, there's really three main characters in the book, right? There's Naomi, there's Ruth, there's Boaz. Naomi is presented, though, as, as the main character in, in the sense that it starts with her, it ends with her, the biggest change happens in, in her life. And so it begins with three funerals, her husband, and both of her sons, and what seems like very little hope for her future. It was grim, it was dark. We know that she had faith, it was there, it was active as she prays for Ruth, her daughter-in-law, and Orpah, her daughter-in-law, as she blesses them, as, she, as the story continues, she blesses Boaz later. Her faith is alive, it's active, it was just shaken. She began to, to give in to bitterness, but, but the Lord. We see in the story that the Lord continues to pursue Naomi. The Lord continues to gently answer her lament throughout the book, throughout her life. 
And one of my favorite parts of the story just at large is taking a step back and seeing that even though Naomi was struggling at times, doubting at times, maybe not reflecting God in a perfect way during the deepest part, the darkest part of her life, God continued to pursue her. And I think about that as, our, as believers ourselves, for all of us who have truly given our life to Christ, confess our sins, believe in him. There may be times where we're not, we're, we're not reflecting him exactly the way we're supposed to, where we have doubts, where we have struggles, where we're not doing well. But you can believe because of Jesus, he doesn't let us go. Underneath are the everlasting arms. And if you get to the end of the day and you think, man, I, didn't, I, was, I wanted to read my Bible today. Man, somebody asked me a question about, about my faith. Or here was an opportunity to do something caring for somebody and I missed it and I didn't do it. And, uh, and you get to the end of the day or you get to the end of the week or you get to the end of the month and you're feeling like a failure. Remember, God continues to pursue. God continues to work. God is faithful even at times when we are faithless. He doesn't give up on us. We see it in this story. We see it overtly in the way that God provides for Naomi. In chapter one, there's only two times where God overtly comes out of the shadows, if you will. In chapter one, it says the Lord visited his people with food. And so with Naomi not knowing what to do, what's the next step? She hears God visited his people in Bethlehem. Here's a glimmer of hope. Here's a direction, something to do, somewhere to go. And so she heads back to Bethlehem. And then at the end of the story in chapter four, we just read, God comes out of the shadows, and it says he gave conception for Ruth. But we know that God was active in Naomi's life throughout her entire life, not just at the beginning, at the end of this story. And we see it mostly, his presence, his work, his activity in her life through a person, through the person of Ruth, through the person of Boaz. We see the love of the Lord. And so I want to remind you a little bit about how they showed love to Ruth specifically. And as we see that, I want us to think about and reflect on how can we intentionally, specifically, practically love people? And then to go from there, how do we specifically, intentionally love God? So we saw in the story that love is enduring. As Ruth gave space to Naomi to process, to grieve after all of that loss when Ruth was hurting herself as well. She gave Naomi space to grieve, to process, to be bitter even. She, she endured with her. And when you think about relationships in your own life, we know, do we not, that people at times, to love them is going to require endurance on our part. Have you noticed sometimes people can be a bit selfish, a little sometimes maybe irrational, self-centered, Love means we endure. At their best, it's easy, but also at their worst. Love requires endurance. What about in loving God? Now, I'm going to talk about some of these ways that Ruth and Boaz loved Naomi and how we can love each other and then how we can love God. Because I think if you're like me, which you are probably in many ways, I wonder to myself at times, how do I love God? Like, I don't always feel like I love God. So what does, it, what does it look like? What does a loving life look like? And we see example after example of what loving God looks like practically, externally, a life of loving God. So when we say to love God may require endurance as well, to love God means to endure with God, my first thought, your first thought might be, is that, 
why would it, should it not, shouldn't it not require endurance to love God? He's perfect. It's true, he is perfect, but do you know what's also true? We're not. And so for imperfect people to love a perfect God is going to require, on our part sometimes, endurance. Because there's going to be times where we don't feel like it. I don't feel like singing to him. I don't feel like listening to him. I don't feel like going back, returning to him, learning from him, being part of the body of Christ. And so to love him at times for us means enduring, showing up, lingering, remaining, returning to him. Love for us toward God is going to require endurance. We also saw in the story that love is courageous. As Ruth, let me just remind you quick what courage means. Courage means the ability to do something even when it's scary. That's one way of saying it. Courage is the ability to do something even when it's scary. And we saw the courage of Ruth as she got up and went out to provide for Naomi and for herself in a place she had never been she had never been before in Bethlehem, when she was by herself at the very bottom of the social hierarchy in a dangerous climate at the time, she goes out in courage to provide for her and for Naomi. Sometimes love looks like courage. And when we care about people, when we love people, sometimes that's going to require courage on our part. What does is, what is loving people with courage look like in your life? I was thinking through some examples I have a couple. I'm sure there's a lot you could fill in here. But I think one way of loving people with courage, loving people to do something even though it's scary, one way is being vulnerable. One way is being honest about yourself, of opening yourself up to somebody and being truthful. Sometimes that looks like talking to the person about their life and being honest about what you see and what can change, that idea of exhortation and doing that in care for somebody even though that might be scary, even though that might cost you, potentially, a friendship or just an awkward time until you work through it. To love people can mean courage. To love God takes courage. Where do we see that? I love where Pastor Nat at the beginning of last message said, you know, I never thought I'd be up here talking to you guys. That takes courage. He talked about how God never changes, but he calls us to change. He calls us to grow. To love him may mean courage. I wanted to, if there's opportunities to serve, to volunteer, for a lot of us, that may be a bit scary. <laughs> but sometimes love looks like courage. To sign up for Care Portal, as a few of our tribes have done, which can involve showing up to a house of a family that you've never met before, that can be a bit scary. But love can look like courage. To share the gospel with somebody, not knowing exactly how they're going to respond, not knowing how they're going to think about you after that, not knowing how that might affect your career and your reputation. Sharing the gospel is often, often takes courage. But it's part of loving God. God calls you to move somewhere with a lot of unknowns, or to go on a mission trip or something like that. That can take courage. God calls you to stay here in a place where it's winter for not one or two or three, but five months. <laughs> I know some of us like winter. There's like at least one of us. Carl's here somewhere, maybe. <clears throat> but that can take courage. Loving God can take courage. We saw in the story that love is humble. 
We saw it in Ruth and in Boaz, this dance of, humili of, of humility. Did I say humility? Love looks like humility sometimes. With Ruth accepting Boaz's just abundant generosity for her and for Naomi, for food and also for protective care. We saw not entitlement from Ruth. Of course you should give me this. You have no idea what I've been through. But she saw a gracious, humble accepting of that. Humility in Ruth, humility in Boaz. To love people sometimes takes humility. Because we talked about how humility means we're not just obsessed with ourselves and our own story. Part of being humble means you see other people and their needs and their desires as important as your own. Does anyone do that all the time? I don't. That one convicts me. It's a struggle. To think about others and their interests and their needs. Love takes the face of humility. And to love God takes humility as well. To be humble before him. Do you know the kinds of Christians that they just seem always so grateful for what God gives them? It's like you're just, you're just eating a normal-looking lunch, and you are just so thankful to God for it. Just humility before the Lord. Every good gift comes from him. And it can take humility to say to God, even if you're at a point in your life and a chapter of your own life where you've been knocking on a door for a long time and you've been waiting for something to change, to say in humility, God, I'm grateful for where you have me right now. I saw a sign on some, in somebody's house, which, yes, if you invite me over, I might quote something that I see in your house. <clears throat> and there's a sign that says, if you have been knocking on the door, if you're knocking on the door, <laughs> waiting for God, still praise him in the hallway. It's just like, I love that. You've been knocking for a while, praise him in the hallway. Love is humble. Another way we saw Naomi receive love from Ruth and from Boaz was through generosity. Love is generous. Ruth saves up her lunch on that first day of work and gives, gives it to Naomi. We see Boaz abundantly generous to Ruth and to Naomi throughout the story. Love is generous. To love people is going to take generosity. Loving them by being generous with your time, with your attention, with your resources. I want to be the kind of person and I want us to be the kind of church where other people don't have to wonder, do they care more about their bank account than they care about me? Do they care more about stuff than they care about me as a person? I, just, I never want people to doubt or think that about us. Love is generous. To love God means to be generous. To have an open-hand policy. Lord, all that I have, all that I am, all of my time, all of my schedule, all of it, would you use it? It's yours. Would you help me be generous to you, Lord? You know, there's only two people that know the answer to the question, are you being generous like that with the Lord? Are you actually giving him your schedule and your time and your resources? Are you actually caring about how to honor him that way? The only two people who know the answer to that question is you and God. Love is generous. We also saw that love is intentional and wise. Naomi came up with this plan of, of how to get Ruth to propose to Boaz and, and, and to get them by themselves and, and a chance for it to happen, for the redemption to happen. And we see the intentionality and the wisdom of Ruth. Though She enacts the plan almost to the T, but she makes her intentions to Boaz clear. She speaks first and essentially says, marry me, redeem the family. Love is intentional. Love is wise. To love people takes intentionality and wisdom. Of knowing how to act for their best interest means you have to know 
the person in some ways and how to do that, to intentionally move towards them, sometimes establishing healthy boundaries. This is what the relationship should look like in a healthy way. And to love God takes intentionality and wisdom as well. You don't need boundaries with God, but we can pursue him intentionally, with a plan, with a rhythm, with a, with a routine in our life where we're consistently approaching and going towards him with a plan. But I hope also in our life there's times that it's unplanned. You weren't planning on pulling over in your car to just sing to him, pray to him, talk to him. That's what love can look like. We saw that love also is honoring and restoring. Boaz knew the character of Ruth, and he would fight to protect it, to protect protect that reputation in Bethlehem. Love is honoring, and to love people means to honor them. When you hear people talking negatively about them with no plan to help, it means stopping those conversations, not participating. It means refusing to put people in potentially dishonoring circumstances, to honor them even when your own reputation may be on the line. And to love God means to honor him as well. Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name. And in a world that constantly dishonors God and says things about him that aren't true, we're called to honor his name. If you're in a family and you hear people talking negatively about your family in ways that aren't true, you who know your family better than they do should be able to say, wait a second, (laughs) right, and honor them. And it's similar with God. We can honor his name. And then finally, we saw that love is prudent. After the proposal, Ruth waits, but Boaz goes out to secure the redemption. There was strategy involved. There was planning. There was thoughtful care and no shortcuts. And to love people means to act prudently, thoughtfully, carefully, Find out how to love them well. What are their weaknesses? What are their strengths? What shouldn't I say or do around them that could be hurtful for them? Thoughtful care. Love means prudence. Sometimes to love someone means to show restraint, as we heard last week. And to love God takes prudence as well. To carefully consider who he is. He's very specific in some ways of how to love him how to approach him, how to worship him. If you read through the Old Testament, you look at the covenant he gave to his people, very specific of how they were to engage God, how they were to worship God, what, what he told them is proper and not. And in the new covenant, he's very clear as well. Jesus said, no one goes to the Father except through me. God says of the Father, God says of the Son, this is my Son in whom I'm, I'm, I'm well pleased Listen to him. To love God is to love Christ and to follow his commands. Love is prudent. And so I, see, I hope in hearing some of those and remembering some of the story, we think about specific ways that we can care for people, right? To love them, which means valuing them and working for their best interest in some specific practical ways, but also how we love God. And we see in the story that to love like that, to live a loving life, it does a lot more than we might dream. We see in the story today that that kind of love, real love, leaves a legacy. The story of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz was part of a much bigger story, and so is ours. So look at the fulfillment of the story. Look at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. 
and he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. <laughs> so we have in one verse, Boaz redeems the family, he marries Ruth, and she gets pregnant. All right there in one verse. It's like after four chapters of buildup, there it is. <laughs> right? And they celebrated, as they should. The women of the village, they celebrate Naomi. They name the son Obed. I don't know about you. I'm not comfortable with other people naming my children. You can have ideas and opinions, but it's a cultural thing. They name the son Obed. And then the story ends with the genealogy. Why is that significant at all? We'll get to that. It's very significant. Okay. Fulfillment of the story. So what happened? The Lord brought life from death. He brought fullness from emptiness in this story that started with such pain and suffering for Naomi. If you compare chapter one with chapter four, here's what you find. In chapter one, Naomi is blaming God. She's mourning. She's saying how she's returning empty to Bethlehem. There seems to be no hope and God is against her and she changes her name from pleasant to bitter. And then at the end of the story, in chapter four, we have the women of Bethlehem blessing God, blessing Naomi, celebrating. It's a picture not of emptiness, but of fullness. And there's another changing of a name, but it's not to bitterness. It's the, it's the naming of a baby. And the baby's name is Obed. God brings life from death. God brings fullness from emptiness. Obed was born. And the name Obed means the one who serves. This could be a nod to Ruth and to Boaz and the lives of service to God that they had been living. This could refer to the fact that Obed would be the one to serve Naomi in her old age. But either way, this leaves a legacy of a family who serves. It's a legacy. Some of us may come from a family legacy of faith where your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, they lived for God. They made decisions wanting to please God and serve God. They prayed for you. And you may be benefiting in ways you haven't considered because of a family of faith that you come from. That's part of my story. But maybe, part of, maybe your story is different. For some of us, maybe we don't come from a family of faith. Ruth didn't seem to come from a family of faith. She may very well have been the first one, but with the life of love that she lives and her decisions to follow God, it sets a foundation for generations to come, we see in her story. Were there setbacks? Will there be setbacks in your own life? Absolutely. We saw in the story there was death, there was famine, there was bitterness, uncertainty. Will a different redeemer swoop in here at the end and ruin everything? All kinds of setbacks. There will be situations in life that force us to draw either closer to God or more distant from him, constantly, more often than I would like. (laughs) There will be setbacks. And in fact, some of us even hearing about this fulfillment in the story of Ruth and of Boaz and of Naomi may currently, right now, just be a bit painful in our own life. You may hear this and think, that's great for Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, but it's not true right now of my story. I hear you. What do we say to something like that? What do you say to somebody they say that? One thing you can say is this. The same God 
the same God who worked in Ruth's life, Naomi's life, Boaz's life, is working in our lives today. No matter what the current chapter you're in, no matter what the situation is, he is committed to sovereignly providing for his people what is best for them. And I don't know exactly where you are right now for most of you, but I can tell you this. If you have committed your life to Christ, if you are his, you can and should look forward to the end of the story. Remember again, he knows better than we do. Did you guys see that Joseph movie when you were younger, maybe? Animated one, where he sings that song over and over again. You know better than I. He does. Trust him on the way home. Trust him now. Let him work in your life. Embrace his love and leave a legacy. But the story doesn't end there. If it did, it would have been a great story. It would have been a wonderful story. From bitterness to life and fullness of seeing God act in these people's lives. Ends with a wedding and a babe. It's wonderful. But it's not the end of the story. After the show, make sure you stick around for the credits at the end of the credits to see if there's something else coming. Verses 18 through 20, we see how their story was part of a much bigger story. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. You can call it Salmon if you want, because that's funny. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Love leaves a legacy, a legacy greater than we can dream. Boaz and Ruth have their son, Obed. Obed has Jesse. Jesse has David, the David, King David, the one who the Israelites throughout their history will say, he, did he have flaws? Yes, (laughs) but he was the greatest king that they ever had. So let's just back up a second. The story starts with Ruth as an outsider, as a foreigner to the people of God. And not just that, she's a Moabite. The Israelites would have viewed the Moabites as their hillbilly cousins, not a great origin story, who are told by by God that they're not allowed to assemble with the Israelites for 10 generations because of the way they treated the Israelites on their way to the promised land. 10 generations they're not allowed to assemble with the Israelites, it says in Deuteronomy 23. And yet this story of Ruth, a Moabite, ends with a 10-generation genealogy that shows us that Ruth is the great-grandmother of the greatest king of Israel, David. Not only is she part of the covenant people now, she has left a legacy. And if that wasn't enough, if you read Matthew chapter 1, what do you see? That line continues until you get to the person of Jesus. Never underestimate the grace of God. Now, millions of us, as Miller says in his commentary, millions of us, and I hope it's billions, stand under the shadow of Ruth's greatest son, Jesus, the king. We share his love and share it with the world. It's incredible how God brings our story into his. Life is a whole lot more than just going through the motions, trying to get what we think we want and what we think we need, and then dying and that's the end. No, we are part of God's story. 
And as we've gleaned through the story of Ruth, pun intended, because of all the grain, I hope that you've seen Jesus. Most of all, that we've seen Jesus and the ways that he loves us. And I want to end with, I really like the way that Pastor Paul, in, uh, the lead pastor of Terra Nova North Adams, wraps up the end here and shows that it's, it's not just the story that points us to Christ, it's also the characters. So as we've heard about Naomi and read about Naomi, she is the lamenter that despite tremendous sufferings and difficulty in her life, she continued to commit her life to God even imperfectly and endured when the end seemed lost. She points to Jesus, who knows a much greater loss to an infinite degree, the man of sorrows, who willingly took the sins and the sorrows of the world, all of it, and remained perfectly faithful to the end. Boaz was the family redeemer of the story. He rescues and provides. He loves generously, even secretly. He shares his riches with those who shouldn't seem to qualify for it. He points to Jesus, the greatest family redeemer, who shares not just the riches of earth, but the riches of heaven, with the unqualified and with the undeserving, with a bride who could contribute nothing herself. And then you have Ruth, the one who dies to herself so that others can live, who's constantly sacrificing, who silently loves, and who takes great risks for her beloved. She points to Jesus, the greatest sacrificial lamb, who goes silently to the cross, and who took incalculable risk for his beloved. There will never be anyone else who loves you like Jesus. And as I was thinking about this before coming up, I thought to myself, I want you to hear this for yourself, but I also want you to hear what I'm about to say for those in your life that you care about, that you want to have a solid relationship with Christ. Because one day, you, one day you're not going to be here for them. One day it's just him. There will never be another one who loves you with more endurance than Jesus, who never quits, who never stops working on your behalf for your best when you know it and when you don't. There will never be one who loves you with more courage, courage like Jesus. Even after tasting and getting a, an idea of what that suffering would be on the cross in Gethsemane, he still walked through hell for you. There will never be one who loves you with more humility like Jesus. It says the highest of heavens cannot contain God, and yet he came and took on flesh and became like one of us. There will never be one who loves you with more generosity like Jesus, who gives and gives and gives to the point where he gives himself who shares in his inheritance with us. And there will never be one who loves you with more intentionality and wisdom like Jesus. The gospel may seem like foolishness to this world. How does a man dying on a cross over 2,000 years ago have anything to do with your life today? It's silly, it's foolish, and yet it's the wisdom of God maintaining perfect justice and holiness while bridging that gap and bringing us to himself and forgiving us of our sins. It's how he makes us part of his story. It's the wisdom of God. And there will never be one who loves you with more honor than Jesus, 
He takes your shame. He died naked on a cross. He clothes you with his righteousness and his character. There will never be one who loves you more prudently than Jesus, more thoughtfully, more carefully. He's planned it from before you were born, rewind a lot more than that, before the foundation of the world. He's been thinking about his bride. May we strive to love God and to love others in all these ways, yes. But may we do that because he first loved us in all of these ways. It's the story of Ruth. Part of a much bigger story than any of them could have dreamed. And may the Lord use us as we follow him and live lives of love for his glory, for his name, leaving a legacy for Christ. Father, thank you for thank you for your son. Lord, your word in, in some ways it's it's just infinitely complex. We continue can, we'll continue to learn it forever, to dig deeper and deeper and deeper into the treasure chest that is your word, and in knowing you more, and at the same time, it's so simple. We could know what it means, the the message of it, when we were four years old. You love us so much that you came yourself, lived and died for us, rose for us, and you're bringing us home. Thank you for loving us, God, in all these ways we heard about in the story of Ruth. Lord, may it give us such peace. May it give us courage and endurance and humility and all those things. May it cause us to grow in our walk with you. And God, as we take communion, may we be humbly grateful for the immense price that you paid so we don't have to focus on our brokenness We don't have to focus on our failures. We focus on what you've accomplished on our behalf. We pray these things in Jesus' name.